Well, good morning. It is good to see you today. I'm glad that uh, you are gathered with us on this uh, wonderful, rainy Lord's Day. Uh, we need the rain. We're thankful for it. And uh, I do want to just encourage you again this evening, if you can be here tonight, uh, to do so. Um, let me announce it this way. Kids, we're having popcorn and drinks tonight. Encourage your parents to come. All right? Popcorn, drinks, and a movie. Who would want to miss it at church tonight? So you bring your parents and come on out. There's going to be uh, a film tonight for uh, just being reminded of the, the Reformation and all the importance that that, that has. Uh, so it's going to rain today. The Cowboys are going to beat the Redskins. And so you just need to come, right? That's all, you know, that we need to know. And um, there's no need to stay home because it's going to, you know, can't be outside. We know how the game's going to end. So just come on out and join us tonight. And we will be glad to be together. Romans chapter 3, we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 26 this morning. Romans chapter 3. A question that has really bothered the conscience of men really since we've existed was expressed by a man named Job. There's a book by his name in the Old Testament. In Job chapter 9, verse 2, Job says this. He asks this question. How can a man be in the right before God? How can we, how can, be, how, how can we stand Righteous before God. That was Job's question. And it's a question I think that all of us have asked in some way since then and even before then, but he's, he's a pretty old figure. And it's really the most important question you could ever ask. How can you be right before God? A lot of questions we could ask today, but this is the most important one. And certainly, as we've been making our way through the book of Romans, by the time you get to verse 20, if you're not left asking that question, you've probably not, not been paying attention to what Paul's been writing. I mean, he's just delivered a scathing indictment detailing the unrighteousness of both Jew and Gentile. All are guilty before God. So, the question being, then how can we be right before him? Is that even possible? Well, let's look at God's word this morning and see. Romans 3, verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins." 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you that by your Holy Spirit, you inspired Paul to write these words. Lord, these words are like balm for our soul. They, they, they tend to our wounded hearts. Father, these are hope-filled words. And we ask now that you would grant us hope as we hear them and as we think upon them. In Jesus' name, amen. This question of how can a man be right before God was really at the center piece, at the center of what we refer to as the Protestant Reformation that began 500 years ago. October 31st, 1517, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther, not Martin Luther King Jr., although he was named after this same Martin Luther. There's a whole story behind that. October 31st, 1517, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther nailed a list of protests against the church, the Catholic church, on the doors of a church in Wittenberg, Germany. And he listed 95 protests. They're called the 95 Theses. This is what you did during that day and time, by the way. If you had kind of a gripe or kind of a debate you wanted to, to present, you would just go nail it on the door, right? And so, wives, this is a good opportunity for you to take maybe advantage of this. If you have some gripes with your husband, just go nail them to some door and say, this is what Luther did, and uh, maybe you'll get some attraction out of that. I don't know. Uh, but this is what they would often do. They would just nail these announcements or protests or things that they would want to discuss on the doors of the church, well, this is what Luther did. He didn't think anything of it. He had some grave concerns over the church and he nailed them to, these, to, to the doors there of, uh, in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, and it was actually later uh, that someone grabbed those and printed them and made famous uh, this, this movement uh, that would become the Protestant Reformation. Luther had no idea that he was about to start a wildfire. He was just trying to, to bring some change within the church because he thought some things had gone drastically wrong, and certainly they had. Um, one of Luther's main concerns was he was attempting to expose the corruptions of the Catholic Church in that day, particularly regarding indulgences. And this basically, an indulgence was basically where one could pay some money and buy their way or buy the way for a loved one that had already passed away out of purgatory. So it was kind of this middle place where um, purgatory, which is not really, it's not in the Bible, by the way, it's a false doctrine. Um, that's this kind of place you go to purge your sins so that you can go into heaven eventually. So most people went there uh, in their understanding. And so an indulgence was you could just pay some money to, to, to speed up the time in purgatory to get them to heaven. And by the way, this money would go help... Um, in this particular case, in, in Luther's day, was going to help build the cathedral there in Rome. So it was a building project, really, that was being funded by these sells, the selling of indulgences. Uh, and so this was, this was a concern of Luther's, and rightly so. People were basically, the church had basically created a corrupt system of buying righteousness. You could pay your way out um, so that the Pope would grant you release from 
purgatory. So Luther's simple protest was to say this was wrong. And his 95 theses primarily, even though it did deal with other things, primarily was addressing this very corruption of buying righteousness, so to speak. It was a simple protest, but it was really a match that ignited ignited a wildfire resulting in what we know today as the Reformation and preservation of the gospel. Friends, when I say, um, humanly speaking, we would not be in this room today singing the songs we're singing. A Mighty Fortress, for example, is one of the songs Luther wrote. We would not be sitting here today singing the songs we're singing, hearing the word being preached, had God not worked through this movement. This would not be happening today. And so if you don't think the Protestant Reformation is a big deal, it's a huge deal. If you think it's just kind of a boring thing from history, it's not boring. It was a recovery and, and rescue of a very corrupted church. And the book of Romans was a critical part of that recovery. Specifically, these verses Chapter three, verses 21 through 26, were, a strate- was a, were a strategic concern for men like Martin Luther or John Calvin or the host of other Protestant reformers, especially regarding what they believed and practiced. In fact, Martin Luther said of the very verses that we're looking at this morning, he said of them that they're the chief point and very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible. My wife asked me yesterday, I was still tidying up some on the sermon, she's like, how, how to, how's it going? And I said, and I quoted that, and I said, well, Luther said that these verses I'm preaching tomorrow are the very central place of the, the whole letter and of the whole Bible, so no pressure. <laughs> the church had created a complex works-based system of gaining righteousness before God, and the reformers responded to that with a resounding no. One cannot buy or earn their way into a right standing before God. Remember that question, how can a man be right before God? Well, you can't buy it and you can't earn it, so how do you get it? Romans 3, 21 through 26, that's how. The solution, I guess is, we'd say this is our main point this morning, the solution to our unrighteousness is God's gift of righteousness that he worked through his son Jesus. Solution to our unrighteousness is the gift of God's righteousness. And as we consider this solution to our universal problem, we are given the response here to our sinful dilemma as God unfolds for us through the words of the Apostle Paul here, how it is that we can be in the right before him. And we're gonna see it in two main points. We're gonna see God's plan in justifying the unrighteous and God's purpose in justifying the unrighteous. Two simple points, God's plan in justifying unrighteous people, God's purpose in justifying unrighteous people. When I say justifying unrighteous people, just saving sinners. God's plan in saving sinners, God's purpose in saving sinners. Two simple observations that we're gonna take from this passage today as we see how it is sinful people can be right before a holy God. So let's look first of all at God's plan. 
God's plan in justifying the unrighteous. It was uh, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of Britain's great preachers from the 1900s, that once said the two most wonderful words in the Bible are, but now. See that in verse 21. You get to verse 20, we referenced this last week. Paul says, for by works of the law, no human being, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So Paul just concludes there, a whole message, so to speak, that he began in chapter one, verse 18, and he now finishes in verse 20 of chapter three, concluding no one's righteous, no Jew, no Gentile, no one, and no one can be that even through works of the law. And then in verse 21, the transition, but now, but there's hope. You get to the end of verse 20, you're like, wow, we're a wreck. Where's the hope? Here it comes. These two words, but now, lead us to an oasis in the desert, so to speak. Again, Paul's just painted a, uh, he's just painted a bleak and dreadful picture of the condition of, of man in the preceding verses, which concluded that all of us are sinners before a holy God and deserve his righteous judgment. Indeed, verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3 say, the whole world may be now held accountable to God. But thankfully, Paul continues into verse 21 with, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. You're not going to be justified by the law, but you can be apart from it. That's good news. So he moves now from our indictment to our rescue. I want us to consider several things about God's plan. God's plan to justify the unrighteous. First of all, let's look at God's plan revealed. Look at verse 21. Paul says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, been revealed apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets, a summary statement there of the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, give testimony to it, bear witness to it. This phrase, righteousness of God, I think we've said this before. It's a common phrase in Romans, and, and I can't remember the number, but it seems like 30 or more times throughout this letter, Paul uses this phrase, righteousness of God. So it's an important one. It's the central th theme, really, to the whole letter. And he uses this phrase, he typically has one of two things in mind. One, God's faithfulness to uphold his character. God is righteous, meaning he's holy, he's perfect, and he has a holy and perfect standard, and he's going to keep sinners, he's going to hold us accountable to that. So he's righteous. He can't deny his character. He's faithful to that. So that's one idea that we get from righteousness of God. But the other idea is that God's, it's, it's a gift of God. This righteousness that he gives to the unrighteous. We actually see both here in our text today. Righteousness is something that we need, and according to chapter 3, verse 10, something that we don't have. Now, this is where the doctrine of justification comes in. And this is one of the most important doctrines you'll ever hear. And if you're thinking, oh, great, he's going to talk about doctrine today. Absolutely. You die without this doctrine. I remember one time I was in a pastor's conference, Greenville, South Carolina, and this John Wilton, he's a British pastor. I think he's passed away now. Just in his very hard British accent, he looked at us and he said, preachers, if you do not, I can't do the British thing. 
but basically, if you do not preach on the doctrine of justification by faith alone in Christ alone at least once a year, if you don't do that, then you need to, you need to be nailed to the wall and shot. So here it is, guys. <laughs> Safe for another year. It's critical. The doctrine of justification. We're told in verse 20 that no one can be justified by works, by keeping the law. What is justification? What does it mean? Justification is a legal declaration whereby God declares a person to be just, to be right, in the right. So when a person is justified before God, God is declaring this person who is unrighteous to be in fact righteous. This is, this is, this is big. Justification is not simply God looking at a sinner and pardoning him, although we are pardoned, but not in the same way as you think about like presidential pardons. The president pardons someone. This person has been in prison carrying out the consequences for his or her crimes, and he pardons them. He just, okay, enough. This is not what we're talking about in justification. It's not a simple pardon. This is a big deal because what God is saying is that you and I, as sinners, fallen before God, broken before him, unrighteous before him, he's now declaring not just you're free, I mean, just forget about your sin. He's not, he's not saying that. He's saying you're now declared righteous. <laughs> this is huge. And Paul says that this has been revealed apart from the law. It can't happen by the law. But the law and the prophets, the Old Testament points to it. This is not just a New Testament idea. This has been groundwork laid all throughout the Old Testament. This idea of, of God declaring sinners, unrighteous people as righteous before him is an Old Testament idea. Stephen's gonna talk more about that next week when he gets to chapter three, that he finishes chapter three and goes into chapter four when he talks about Abraham. But even prophets like Habakkuk talked about this. Paul's not talking about something new. This is not a new idea. It's found throughout the Old Testament. The way of salvation has not changed. It was promised beforehand. Go back to, to, to chapter one, verse two. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Old Testament. The unity of the Bible is something that we must see here, must maintain. We have one complete unified story from beginning to end. This righteousness of God is not just now some, oh, guess what we have now? No, this, this framework has been laid. So God's plan is revealed. God's plan to declare sinners, to declare the unrighteous is now righteous, has been revealed but let's consider not only has it been revealed, it's, it's number two, 
Let's consider God's plan acquired. How do, we, how do we get this? How do we obtain this righteousness? If the gift of righteousness is not something we earn, or if the gift of righteousness is not something that we can pay for, if this gift of righteousness is not something that we can somehow merit, then how do we get it? Through faith. Paul can't be clear enough about that. Look at, I mean, three times at least in these verses he says that, and then he's going to talk more about it in chapter four. Three times, verse 22. Look, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So faith is a noun, Believe is a verb, and it's really the same word, just in its verbal and noun forms. So there twice in one verse, he's talking about faith, belief. Verse 25, he says all of sin in verse 23, justified by his grace as a gift. Verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received, how? By faith. Verse 26, he concludes, God is, the just, God is just and the justifier of who? The one who works, the one who pays for, no. The one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Again, this is a big deal that we can't afford to change or lose. The Reformation refers to what we call sola fide, faith alone. Meaning that justification, being declared right before God, is acquired through faith, not faith plus something. The Roman Catholic Church and the Council of Trent responded to this. They would believe that justification begins with the sacrament of baptism, infant baptism, and continues through faith. It includes faith, but also it includes works. Listen to a couple of quotes from the Council of Trent. They write, if anyone says that the godless are justified by faith alone, let him be anathema, let him be damned. It's pretty strong, right? So if anyone says what we're saying, what I'm saying this morning, they would say, let him be anathema. Again, they write, for faith, unless hope and charity are added thereto, neither unites one perfectly with Christ nor makes one a living member of his body. So yes, faith is required for justification, but it's faith plus works. What Paul is teaching here is quite different than that. Paul is saying justification is acquired by faith. I don't see anything else added there to you. It's by faith, by faith, by faith. That's why the Reformation happened. They would say faith alone. It's not faith plus works, not faith plus law keeping, not faith plus you fill in the blank. Friends, don't think that, that I'm picking on Catholics more. I appreciate Catholic Church in many ways and some of the things they do, especially speaking up for the, 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 the issue of life in our culture and, and, and those kinds of things. However, I think they get this drastically wrong. But it's not just a Catholic problem. Friends, this is, this is very much any problem because we're all so prone to wanting to earn God's approval. This is something you and I struggle with. Yes, we trust in Jesus, but I sure want to do something else. 
Surely there's something else required of me. No. Not according to the Bible. To, to have salvation. Now we do need to make a little clarification here, I think. We're not saying that one is justified because we have faith. A little subtle difference here. We have faith, but, but, but that faith we're talking about is the means through which we lay hold of Christ. Now, that, a little bit more on that next week. But the point being is that, that faith is not this now work that God's waiting on for us to seal the deal, to close the deal. He's, he's closed the deal. All he's saying is that in order to have it, is, in order to access it, in order to acquire it, it comes through faith. And friends, here's the big takeaway. Just as it is true that all are sinners, Jew and Gentile, Romans 3, 23 makes that clear, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It's also available to all through faith. God doesn't have separate plans. I'm gonna do it this way for the Jews. I'm gonna do it this way for the Gentiles. I'm gonna do it this way in 2017. I'm gonna do it this way in 1517. No. The truth ever since the scriptures began has been that once sin entered the world, we all, all are sinners before God and all have access to him and the righteousness that he is willing to give us through faith. You can see next week how Abraham, Genesis, Abraham in Genesis was counted righteous through his faith. He's an example to that. So huge implications for how we live out our lives. We need to avoid seeking salvation by works, all of us. If I just do enough of this, maybe God will be pleased. If I quit doing this sin, maybe God will accept me for who I am. If I go to church enough, if I read my Bible and pray enough, that's, that's not how salvation comes. Martin Luther was a monk prior to and during his conversion. And he tried everything a monk could do to prove himself good before God. In fact, in his own words, he said, if a monk could have been saved by, a monk, by his monkery, it is I. He did everything that monks were supposed to do to be holy. Everything. Starved himself basically to death. He slept on a cold floor. He confessed his sins so much so that the people hearing those confessions were about done with him. Friends, you cannot earn your way to heaven. You cannot. Great implications for this about evangelism and missions. Everyone has the same disease and if, ever, everyone, if anyone's going to be saved, it will be by faith in the same Savior. Salvation is acquired through faith. But let's see, not only God's plan revealed, God's plan acquired, but let's consider God's plan as it is accomplished. Paul acknowledges that his plan to bring a saving righteousness to sinners has been revealed in the Old Testament. Now it's accessed through faith. But how is God able to do this? What, he, what has happened that this, this is possible? 
How can God in his righteousness accept the unrighteous? There's got to be more to this, and there is, and we're going to see it here in verses 24 and 25. What we're going to see here is, is we're getting now to the very heart of the gospel of Jesus Christ. How is God's plan accomplished? Two points here. One, by grace. It's right there in the text. Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Summary statement for chapter 1, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Friends, if something is a gift, you've not paid for it, nor have you earned it. It is given to you. It's by grace. The five doctrines that we often point to that we can sing this morning in that new song that we did, the five doctrines that we often point to coming out of the Reformation are these. Scripture alone, faith alone, grace alone, Christ alone, all for the glory of God alone. Here we're reminded of God's grace. And by the way, all five of those you could kind of see in this text. Paul's talking about this salvation that the law and the prophets gave witness to, the scriptures pointed to. You don't need anything else to, to point you to that. The scriptures do that, scripture alone. We've already seen how it's through faith. It's acquired through faith alone. Now we're talking about how that comes by God's grace alone as a gift and it's going to be centered in Christ alone. And we're going to get to verse 26 where it's pointing to the integrity of God so it's to his glory alone. And here we're reminded of God's grace, this free gift. Friends, our standing before God comes entirely from God as a gift of his grace. Think about health insurance. That puts a nice taste in our mouth, doesn't it? Health insurance. One of the things that you consider when you're looking at health insurance plans is the affordability of it, right? And one of the things that you consider in choosing an insurance plan is the level of your deductible, right? The higher the deductible, typically the lower the monthly premium. So if you're willing to take a $5,000 deductible, your premium, your monthly payment will be lower you choose a $1,000 individual deductible, your monthly payment will be much higher, right? That's how insurance, most of it works. And the way most of it works is that once you have met that deductible, once you've paid out, if you have a $1,000 deductible, once you've paid out the $1,000, then you have to pay, uh, the, uh, not until then will the insurance benefits kick in. So you've paid your $1,000 out of pocket and then the insurance benefits kicks in and typically only 70, 80% at that point, right? Friends, when it comes to salvation, listen. There is no deductible and everything is covered 100%. No deductible. 
You don't have to pay so much in before God's grace kicks in. Salvation is all of grace. And it covers 100% of your need to make you well. I think a lot of times we think of salvation kind of like health insurance. We've got to do a little bit before God's grace takes the rest. No. It's all of grace. By grace. So this, it's accomplished by God's grace. It's accomplished, number two, through the redemption that comes in Christ Jesus. Right there in verse 24. Justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Redemption is this idea. It has something to do with being bought. A liberation through payment of a price. This term often is used in reference in, in ransoming prisoners of war or historically slaves or condemned criminals. A variety of different contexts this, this term would have been used, especially in this day. Redemption. So here Paul presents our salvation as those who have been purchased, redeemed, ransomed. And that's important because it teaches us that there had to be a price paid. While salvation is free for you, there was a cost. And this goes back to God's character being upheld, his integrity being upheld, even in bringing salvation. And that's important because God simply doesn't just let our sin go. He doesn't just sweep it under the rug or choose to ignore it. He deals with it. So for us to be counted righteous before him, something has to happen. And that's explained further in verse 25. We're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption, through this purchased, this pardoned, this, this being redeemed, ransomed in Christ. What did he do? Verse 25, whom God put forward, notice God sent Christ, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation, some translations, an atoning sacrifice. As a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Now, this idea of propitiation, it sounds, that's a hard, kind of strange word. We don't, I don't know, anybody use that word this week? <clears throat> I don't know, sometimes we're like, we, sh we shouldn't use these hard words. Well, if they're in the Bible, I'm going to use them. It's a biblical word. We just maybe need to explain them a little bit. It's an important word. What does propitiation mean? Don't let the sound of that push you away. What does it mean? What well, refers simply to the appeasing of wrath, the, the, the satisfying, uh, satisfying the demand of justice. That's all a propitiation is. So when Jesus died on the cross, he was satisfying the demand of God's justice against sin. Not for his own sin, but for the, for the sin of those who would trust in him. At the cross, the anger of God against sin was being unleashed and the penalty we owed was being paid in full. That's what verse 25 says. So when we sing in just a minute, in Christ alone, and we sing that verse, and on that cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. The hymn writer just didn't make that up. It's right here in the text. God's just, righteous anger against sin, satisfied, appeased, 
at the cross. Sin had to be punished. A payment had to be made, and Jesus laid down his life for that. Christopher Ash, a commentator on this, said, Jesus is not an innocent third party intervening between a vengeful God and sinners. He is God himself taking upon God the substitution that pays the penalty we deserve. And this is the hope that we have as, as Christians. We are all unrighteous. That's what Paul has said. And how do we get this righteousness? Well, God put Jesus, his son, forward he lived a life of perfection. He was perfectly obedient to the law. He fulfilled all righteousness in that way. And then he died on the cross. Why did he die on the cross? To forgive you of your sins. Yes, but he also died as a payment for sin, as a substitute for you dying in your place, taking upon him the punishment you deserved, right? This is what he did. And so friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, listen, this is critical that you understand this. If you have any hope of being declared right before God, it will not come in you trying to earn your way to him. It will come through believing in Jesus who died as a substitute sacrifice on behalf of you. So if you're not a Christian, there's the way to salvation. Friend, look to Jesus, trust in him because he paid it all for people just like you. If you would quit trusting in yourself, quit trying to believe the lies of this world and you would tr embrace him through faith, knowing that everything that he did fully satisfied God's justice once and for all so that you can be accepted. Friend, trust in him, believe in him, and you will be saved. That is the promise that we have. Paul uses these, these words, justification, redemption, propitiation. Great vocabulary words, right? They're all right here in the text. Justification, redemption, propitiation, and all of them address the problems that were revealed in chapters one through three, verse 20. Basically, we could summarize the, the, the problem that we faced in, in those previous verses this way. We are all guilty as sinners. We are all in bondage to sin, and we all deserve God's just anger for our sin. We're guilty, we're in bondage, we deserve his judgment. Justification, redemption, propitiation address all three of those problems. We're guilty, justification says not guilty. We're in bondage, we're enslaved, we're given over to the sin. Redemption says you're released from that. We all deserve the righteous anger of God against our sin. Propitiation says no, Jesus took that upon himself. Friends, what a great hope we have, this plan to bring righteousness to the unrighteous. But what was God's purpose? Let's look at point number two. God's purpose in justifying the unrighteous. When we consider this amazing free gift of salvation that's acquired by faith, accomplished by the redemption of Jesus, we often conclude that this was done all for our sake, and it was done for our sake, most certainly. But friends, it was not strictly for our sake. Again, to quote Christopher Ashe, he said, these verses, 
Romans 3, 21 through 26, these verses are primarily about God and his reputation, not strictly about me and my salvation. These verses are primarily about God and his reputation, not strictly or not solely about me and my salvation. God works to declare unrighteous people as righteous, why? In order to show his faithfulness, even to his own standard of righteousness. He did it, we're told, to show that he is just in the justifier. Now, thinking about verse 25, we see that God put forth Jesus as an atoning sacrifice or a propitiation. He took upon himself the righteous anger of God in the place of sinners. Notice he says there, the second part of verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness show God's righteousness, his faithfulness to himself because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. What does that mean? It sounds like a little strange insert there. Basically, all throughout the Old Testament, God had not poured out his total anger against sin. The sacrificial system was instituted, but it was a temporary thing. And it couldn't ultimately forgive sin. Hebrews chapter four talks about, Hebrews, the whole book talks about the inadequacy, the insufficiency of the sacrificial system. It was there as a placeholder pointing forward ultimately one day to when there would be one final sacrifice once and for all, that's Jesus. And so what Paul is saying there in that simple verse, this was to show that God did what was needed. All throughout the Old Testament, his mercy, we think a lot of times that God was just mean in the Old Testament. He wasn't mean. If anything, God's restraining himself. He's extending mercy to his covenant people all the way throughout the Old Testament. All that's saying there is that God restrained his full-orbed anger against sin until the day his son came and went to the cross. There and there alone. would his judgment go? And this was to show, look at the text, verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. God is holy, he is righteous, and he cannot tolerate sin. So in order to make you a Christian, he can't just say, okay, I love you, let's just forget about the bad stuff, come on in. He doesn't do that. That's not how salvation works. He looks at you. He sees you as a sinner. He says, I love you so much. I'm going to adopt you as my own. In order to do that, I'm going to send my own son to be your substitute so that my anger against sin will be poured out on him instead of you. If you'll trust in him by faith, you're mine. So he does it to show that he's just. No cross, no salvation. He maintains his holiness even as sin is being punished. But he's also showing that he's the justifier, that he does declare the unrighteous righteous. Friends, when God justifies the sinner, he does so in a way that meets the demands of his own justice against sin and yet provides wonderful redemption for the sinner. That's his purpose to show his glory in his faithfulness. 
to his own character, for your benefit, yes, but for his glory. So, so what? Right? What does this, what does this mean? I mean, this is kind of some heavy stuff here, right? This is some good stuff. What, what do we do with this? Just very quickly, I want to give you five points of application. When we hear what the Holy Spirit inspired here, how does this lead us to respond? First of all, if you're not a Christian, look to Jesus and be saved. Look to Jesus and be saved. Most importantly, this is the good news of the gospel. That but now transitions us from bad news to good news. It takes us from death to life. It takes us from being unrighteous to being declared righteous to be acquired by faith. Friends, if you're not a Christian, look to Jesus and believe in him and you will be saved. You will be declared. You'll, you've come in here today unrighteous, even in God's sight. You can leave here if you embrace Jesus by faith, declared righteous. If you would simply just yield in faith. Friends, I know that I, I, I preach that often here, week after week after week after week. But in a room this size with this many people, there is most definitely someone or multiple people in this room that aren't yet a Christian. And this is the good news. This is your hope. What are you waiting on? Take your pride and throw it away and trust in the Savior be adopted as his child and know the joy that he can give as he justifies guilty sinners. Believe in him. That's the first thing. You say, well, I've done that. I, I love that wonderful truth. I've embraced Jesus. I, I'm there. Okay. Here's some other points of application. You should worship God. If you don't come away from these verses just filled with joy and amazement and a sense of awe before God, then I, I don't know what else to say. Not because I've said it, but when you read, just read it. That God has acted to release us from the guilt. He's acted to take convicted sinners, set us free, not only that, to declare us righteous. Friends, we ought to stand in wonder that God has been so gracious to us in justifying the ungodly. We should stand amazed. We should give praise to God. We should be singing. We should be rejoicing. This is something truly to sing about and rejoice in. We should be filled with worship for God. A third point of application is that we should live in faithfulness to him. This free gift of grace is the motive through which joyful obedience springs. As we live out lives, listen, for those who have not embraced this free gift of righteousness by grace, through faith in Christ, for those who don't understand salvation that way, they live in constant fear. 
They're afraid to even try to obey God. What if they mess up? And you don't have to live in fear. When you understand what Jesus has done for you and you embrace that by faith, friends, that is just motive to live out lives of freedom and joyful obedience to the King. You get up in the morning and you wanna, you wanna read your Bible, you wanna pray, you wanna come to church. Those things don't make you a Christian, but when you've met Jesus, they certainly become part of your life because you want to live as a Christian. You wanna live as adopted sons and daughters of the King. Your motives change, your decisions change, everything about you changes. You're transformed from the inside out. Your desires, your longings, your, your life changes. We don't just keep living like we did. Certain things stop and new things begin. Everything changes. As we are just ask the people that know you well how much your life is different because of meeting Jesus, what would they say? Number four, we should share the gospel. Friends, if this is the only hope that sinners have, then they need to hear it. My guess is that if you're a Christian here today, that you're sure glad somebody told you. Why would we remain quiet? Why would we not say something when we see someone that's just trying to earn their way before God? Or they don't even have any desire to honor him. We need to speak the gospel. And then number five, we need to love each other. You look around this room. This room is filled with ex-convicts. That's what you were. Guilty. Lawbreakers. And God in his grace redeemed you. He set you free. He didn't just say, forget about the guilt. He took upon himself your guilt and your shame and your conviction. And he did all of that in Christ. And this is what this, this church is made of. We have that in common. We're all convicted before God. All guilty as charged. And our great God has set us free, not only just to go and do our own thing, but he set us free and he's brought us together in the same family. And so we ought to care well for each other in light of that hope that we all share. So when you get together this week with your fellow convicts at home group, love them well. They've been rescued from the same dungeon from which you came. Friends, we have much to rejoice over because we have a God who loves us and gave his son for us. How, how can a man be right before God? Well, God has given us that answer by sending his son
and he paid it all. And in him, we have full redemption, full righteousness, and everlasting, everlasting hope. To him be the glory. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you for this amazing work that you have done, this amazing gift that you have given. Father, we, we're amazed that, that you would love unrighteous people, that you would love broken, guilty people like us. So much so that you would give your only son, that you would put forward your only son to be the wrath bearer for our sake. That he would be the one that you would use to set us free and to declare us righteous. Father, what I hope we have. And Lord, I pray this morning that as we consider these things that we would be thankful that we would respond in worship, that our lives would be marked in faithfulness, that we would be eager witnesses and that we would be caring and loving to each other. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you love us and you gave your son for us. Father, for those who have yet to trust, I pray, even for those here in this room today, Lord, that you would bring about genuine saving faith in their lives. Lord, you know who they are. You know the people that have yet to trust in you, to believe in you, to embrace you by faith. God, would you work in their hearts? Would you give them eyes to see what you have done? And would you bring about faith today? Lord, we thank you for all that you've given us. We thank you for this great hope, this great savior, this wonderful gospel. Lord, we love you, and we do so only because you first loved us. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.